Welcome to our social landscape. I'm J.R. Woodward. Last week, I had the pleasure of talking to Patterson Hood, co-founder of the alt-country slash southern rock band, the Drive-By Truckers. Earlier this summer, I decided I wanted to interview people from different walks of life to see if they think their chosen field can or even should be an agent of social change, or at least social documentation. As a sociology professor, I view this as an important element of my career. Indeed, the American Sociological Association, our governing board, defines sociology as the study of social life, social change, and the social causes and consequences of human behavior. We even have a subdiscipline called public sociology, the goal of which is to engage non-academic audiences in critical discussions of social issues that are typically confined to the academic world. In fact, it's one of the reasons I started this blog. But not everyone's a sociologist, and I wanted to hear from some other folks. So with this in mind, over the last month or two, I interviewed Dr. Shane Doyle, an American Indian activist and educator, and Dustin Harewood, an acclaimed painter and mixed media artist and professor of art. This brings me to Patterson Hood. A native of Muscle Shoals, Alabama, he was exposed to music and, interestingly, racial politics at an early age by his father, David Hood. The Elder Hood is the co-founder and bass player for the legendary Muscle Shoals Sound Studio, who played with many top African-American performers, such as Etta James, Aretha Franklin, Percy Sledge, and Solomon Burke, at a time when much of the South still practiced de facto, if not de jure, segregation. Patterson Hood and Mike Cooley formed the Drive-By Truckers in Athens, Georgia in the mid-1990s, and this year they released their 12th studio album titled The Unraveling. During their long career, they have toured the world, appeared on Conan, The Late Show with David Letterman, The Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, and their songs have been featured in Justified, Criminal Minds, and The Shield, among others. They even played the iconic Freebird in Jacksonville Beach before it closed. Over the course of his career in music, Patterson has written songs that explore the experiences of the working class and people of color, sometimes subtly and other times with patency. Some songs explore social class specifically, such as Putting People on the Moon from the 2004 album The Dirty South. Mary Alice had a baby and he looked just like I did. We got married on a Monday and I've been working ever since Every week down at the Ford plant But now they're shutting down Goddamn Reagan's in the White House And nobody gives a damn Double-digit unemployment TVA be shutting soon While over there in Huntsville Putting people on the moon other songs directly address race relations and even their relationship between law enforcement and communities of color, such as What It Means from the 2016 album American Band. Out of anger, out of fear. And if you say it wasn't Rachel when the shot him in his tracks, well, I guess that means that you ain't black. It means that you ain't black. I mean, Barack Obama won, and you can choose where to eat. But you don't see too many white kids lying bleeding on the street. So my goal was to sit down with him, virtually, since he lives in Portland, Oregon now, and find out how his music has addressed our social landscape over the years, and what he sees as the role of his art in contributing to the national dialogue. Hello, hello. Mr. P. Hello, how you doing? Looks like you're drinking a cold beer. Yep. It, it kind yeah. of, uh, it's the interview process for me. Yeah, I hear you. Our, uh, whatever, whatever her title is, DeVos, you know, she, uh, she did a press conference in front of an empty bookshelf the other day. It's like, okay, she's, <laughs> how like, appropriate. The, she's like the head of schools and she <laughs> doesn't have a single book on her shelf. Yeah, it's kind of perfect. Perfectly horrific like everything else. 
is um, did, I said that, saw that you went to University of North Alabama. Did, uh, I read uh, one of the things I read. It said that you attended for several years. So I'm not sure what that means. It's better than saying you matriculated, I guess. But you know, you attended even for several word, years. Even the word "attended" is probably uh, should be taken lightly and loosely. Uh, <laughs> did you, did you I was enrolled. I was enrolled several years. Yeah, but uh, I didn't attend that much, and uh, especially towards the end when I when I started playing with Cooley, and uh, which was 35 years ago next week, wow. and uh, that he and I started playing together. So. Um, yeah. Did you take any sociology? Uh, I did take a sociology class, yeah. And uh, I probably did decent in that. I probably, because I would have liked that. That would have been a class I would have actually liked. But I didn't do very well in any of them. I was just, my my head wasn't there. But um, who I was and what I was and what I wanted to do, and I knew deep down that none of it was what I was doing. And so, you know, and so when I started playing in what became Adam's house cat all of a sudden it's like, Oh, this is, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And right. that was the end of it. I've, I've stayed in school two more semesters and, and basically, you know, quit before they kicked me out. My son, he's six, six and a half. He just finished kindergarten. And I told him uh, I was going to interview this guy, Patterson hood, the singer. And he said, how come? I said, well, we're going to talk about the same stuff he and I talk about. We have a little uh, podcast called Two for the Ages. It's like the 15-year-old and the six-year-old worldviews, you know. Uh, so I said, we're going to talk about race and protests and stuff. And so he thought about it, and he said, well, I've never met anybody named Patterson. And I said, I, I, don't, think, I don't think I have either. Maybe he goes by Pat. And so my son says, uh, well, maybe he should go by Mr. P. And I said, all, <laughs> all right, how, how come? And he said, well, it's quicker. Like, yeah. Pat. Everybody called me Pat growing up, and I always hated it. And uh, and small town, it was there was no changing it. It just was what it was. So when I moved away, I kind of adamantly was Patterson from then on. I just never liked the name Pat. You know? Yeah, sure. But I like Mr. P. Now you can I go like with Mr. P. Yeah, I can go with Mr. P. All right. So I was gonna start uh, originally by asking you just your general impressions, you know, of what was going on in this time of social engagement, civil unrest um, that we have probably haven't seen for 50, 60 years. And then I remembered that you moved to Portland and um, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I guess, and Portland's been in the news a lot lately. And so I yeah. thought maybe we'd start there where you can tell us what the hell's going on in Portland. Well, for starters, it's, it's, it's mostly not like it's being reported, hmm. you know, you know, Portland's a beautiful, beautiful city, and and this time of year, it's stunning. And, I mean, looking out my window at my neighborhood, it's green, it's beautiful, it's peaceful. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's like if the Cleavers were hipsters. <laughs> you know, it, it's like, it, it, it's just, it's such a lovely town. The news is making it look like, you know, it's a war zone and it's it's become little mini Beirut over here. You know, it's Beirut used to be a beautiful town too. So there's that. The protests are also largely beautiful and peaceful and kind of uplifting. Uh, certainly, certainly some anger because there's every right to be some anger and, and, but it's, it's, it feels very positive. I went down there Saturday night. It was the first night I've actually gone and been in it, and uh, I'm ashamed to say because I, I, I should have long long earlier, but for uh, a host of reasons, hadn't gotten down there earlier. Uh, a lot of it has to do with my wife is absolutely convinced that if I somehow cross paths with someone with COVID that I'm going to die, right. and uh, uh I hope I won't. I don't think I will, but you never know. But so I've, it's it's taken me that long to really manage to talk my way out the door to go. And uh, I guess I'm glad I went because I needed to be there and I needed to see it. I needed to feel it and be in it and all of that. And I needed to, when I said something about it, know what I was talking about from firsthand experience instead of just all the things people have told me. So, uh, so I'm glad I went. Everything's really centered around one building. And the building 
is one of those. Uh, I, I'm I'm not sure the architectural name for it, but it's one of those concrete bunker-looking buildings anyway. I mean, the building is about as indestructible-looking. You know, if you flew a plane into it, it would probably destroy it, but it might not. <laughs> I mean, it's about, it, it's about as fort. It looks like a, a damn bunker. I mean, it's just a big, thick, concrete building. Got a little graffiti on the side of the walls. Someone throwing an M80 at that building, it's going to bounce. And it's going to wow. go and make yeah. a noise. They've now built this like gate fence around it, you know, this steel thing around it. Like I said, you know, the protesters, they weren't throwing shit. They were, they were carrying signs. They were shouting things, occasionally some profanities, you know, uh, certainly nothing nearly as rough as what I would be saying on stage at any given time, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, even in my happier songs. But, uh, and then at about 1130, almost on the dot, it seems like it's been ramping up a little earlier each night. Most nights, it seems like it keeps, it was midnight and it's kind of worked its way to 1130. All of a sudden the troops come out, and they're basically aggressively bashing heads and tear gassing and and try, trying to inflict as much hurt and pain as humanly possible on as many people as they can get to to prove a point because wow. that's what they're being paid to do. So there's no uh, event that precipitates that. It's just like a, a, a switch flips. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like you set your time. You can set your clock by it, except it does seem to be easing a little earlier it seems like they're coming out you know like a minute or two earlier each time it's like it's just kind of working its way uh a a little earlier saturday night was a new one instead of them coming out they just started lobbing tear gas from they opened a window in the structure and started shooting tear gas out from there into the crowd and uh you know, and they're they're particularly they're definitely targeting people with cameras and press and moms. Are these people? Uh, is this like the private security folks that are doing that? Is that to the the people? I that- think it's a uh, it's a company like I, I know some people have been finding some emblems as an XTI X. It's one of the Blackhawk type companies. Yeah, yeah. and. Uh, uh, there's definitely, I mean, they're definitely like hired games. Okay. You know, they're not soldiers who have any kind of training. I mean, the people, I, you know, the friends I have who are in the military are super upset about all of this going on because they feel like it's a stain on what they do. And they're very quick to point out that this is not them. This is not military. And and that's, in a way, scarier because at least the military guys, they're, they're trained professionals, you know, at dealing with situations and, you know, people still get hurt and killed and, and shit escalates and shit goes wrong with trained professionals. But these guys aren't trained professionals. This is, this is like a goon squad. And it might be uh, more, more accountability as well with the military yeah. personnel. Yeah. Cause they don't have, they don't have numbers. They don't have any kind of markings on them. You know, and uh, and that's scary. You know, that's what's occupying our town. Sure. And like I said, you know, they're 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 all staying. They're staying at the Marriott, <laughs> and, which is about five blocks from the federal building. And I guess at some point in time, they make their way into the federal building and then change into their gear. And then they sit there with their watches and then go, OK, it's going to be 1129 tonight. Boom, you know, and then they come out aggressively, and someone's going to be killed. You know, it, it, some, someone's going to be killed. Yeah, I wonder where where it stops. I wonder what the hell yeah. is. Yeah. Um, well, let's back up for a minute, if you don't mind. Um, so looking at your the truckers the last 25 years or so, you think has your music become more 
political over time, would you say? I know you've always sort of talked about some of these issues, um, but are you doing more so lately? And if so, was there, was there like a tipping point or something that made you get more active with the music? I think Trayvon Martin was a tipping point. And Ferguson, which was almost, you know, those two things were, were, were so closely related in time. And, uh, and uh, I guess Trayvon Martin was slightly ahead of it. And, uh, but when, when those two things happened, you know, and of course I've been aware, I mean, for, for years, you know, and, uh, you know, there's a, a story I tell about the writing of what it means, which was definitely a, a turning point for me as a, as a, as a writer uh, that about a, 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 an example of that happening in 1995 to a neighbor, a former neighbor of mine when I lived in Athens. When I first moved to Athens, I lived across the street from this, this uh, African-American woman and her grown son who was probably working on about an eight-year-old level something like that. And uh, he definitely, I don't know if it was on the spectrum or exactly what, what it was. And uh, as I doubt they were exactly getting the best healthcare in the world to start with, you know, but um, he was shot and killed by police in Athens in 1995. Very similar to a lot of these stories you hear they were deeply, deeply religious, and he had this epiphany one day that he should cast off all worldly things and go spread the word of Jesus to anyone and everyone that he could come in contact with. And he interpreted that epiphany as taking off his clothes and running naked downtown. And so he was naked when he was shot there were, I forgot how many bullets fired, but I think he got hit five times in front of a crowd of people, no less. And of course, you know, you know, nobody was charged and it was, you know, it was all, you know, well, he was being aggressive. And it's like, I don't think he was actually being aggressive. You know, I think he was being excited and therefore grown black man. It's threatening. You know, and and so it's something that had, you know that that murder had always haunted me anyway. And I think after Trayvon Martin and then the incident in Ferguson and all of that, it made me remember it again. Like, like it's like wow, you know, it's like this is this has been happening forever. You know, I mean, you know, it's it's no it was no secret that it had been happening, but it wasn't it wasn't getting talked about all of a sudden it was being talked about all of a sudden people had phones and things were you know they it was it was on everybody's in everybody's pocket all of a sudden and that was where i was coming from when i wrote that song you know and when i wrote it i didn't know if it would be a trucker song if it would be something you know i don't want to put the band in a position of having to do something they're not comfortable with or whatever, you know, I, I, I can, you know, I could have recorded it myself and put it out, you know, a lot less people would have heard it, but I could totally do that. I was, that's what I figured would happen, but I played it for the band and they enthusiastically took it. It's like, Oh yeah. You know, and, and Cooley's response was actually to play me his new song, which was Raymond Cusiano. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. It's like, Oh shit. I guess we're going to make an, I guess, I guess we're going to make that album, you know? And, you know, within a, a, about a year we had, you know, it was, it was definitely, it all happened really quickly with that record. It, it all came together quickly and kind of magically. So, so, you know, that was sort of, I guess, a turning point. I mean, I never really, you know, we've, I've always considered us political. I've always considered myself political and our music to have at least a political undercurrent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I consider Southern Rock Opera very much a political record, sure. and uh, and particularly in regards to issues of race, which has always been uh, something I've been really passionately heated heated about because of because of my upbringing. So it, it it seemed kind of a it was kind of a natural thing once it happened for it to become all of a sudden more in the forefront. Your story is fairly well known with your father, David Hood, working with a lot of African-American artists and whatnot. 
And so what about the rest of the band? I know you've had personnel changes over the years, but you know, you said you weren't sure if they would like this song. Um, how do they get to that spot? I mean, have they kind of been along the way political as well? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm not surprised that they embraced it by any stretch at all. And, uh, I just didn't want to take for granted. I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I didn't want them to feel like they're being thrust into this role because there is something that there is a, a potential downside to doing this, you know, or as I sometimes refer to it, sometimes you get tired of being Jane Fonda, you know, and, uh, and, and so I didn't want to put anybody in a position where they were having to be on stage doing something they weren't comfortable doing. But uh, there's never been a moment of any kind of pushback from anybody in my band about it. I mean, they were, they were, if anything, you know, cheerleading forward about it. Okay. I didn't know just where, what their stops were that brought them to the spot. It's not like you can't be a person that's white and in the South and not be racist. It's just uh, I, when I was at Alabama, I didn't meet a whole lot of them. <laughs> you know, a lot of the people I met wouldn't be making music, you know, that you're, that you're making. So I just didn't quite know, you know, what, where, they came, where they came from it. I'm a white sociologist and I study race and uh, I wonder what gets people to be protesters, you know, to, to be involved in this and what the, 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 the kickback is for whites and for blacks. Do you remember that old um, I am a man picture from the March in Memphis, Tennessee, when King was there for the guard, the sanitation worker strike. And there's this iconic photo of a line of men picketing and they all have hats on and well-dressed and a sign that says, I'm a man. And then there's a row of national guard with their rifles and bonnets, you know, on them as they go by. And right in the middle is a white dude marching and he doesn't even have a sign, you know, or a hat or anything. Just this tall white guy with a beard and a shirt and a necktie. And I remember thinking, you know, how, who is that guy? Like, how do you get to that, that spot? Because I, I think the stakes are, are different. On one hand, I think they're, they might be the same. You know, like everybody benefits from a society with less prejudice and discrimination. But whites can kind of opt out if they need to, you know. So I always wondered, what you know, what is it about certain um, people that brings them to that spot? And, and then what are the stakes? You see what I'm getting at? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think a lot about those kind of things, you know. And, and I'm certainly privileged there's no denying it and uh i try to think how can i how can i use what i've got to best you know help make a better world for my kids and for my kids kids and for you know for you know i've always considered our countries and and probably the world for that matter dealings with race and prejudice to be sort of one of the the major tragic flaws of of maybe of the human race you know and uh the fact that we started this country with slave states and and you know is kind of the achilles heel that that is that is still coming back to haunt us you know and the fact that when you know we fought that horrific war bloody war you know, in the 1800s, but then we backtracked after after Reconstruction and didn't it 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 didn't it didn't make it final. You know, it's still it's still going on. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Mm-hmm. I don't know answers for shit. You right. know, yeah, right? The, the questions are a start, but you know, you got to uh, start somewhere, I guess. You go back further, right, with Native Americans and. Manifest destiny, you know, God wants us to have this yeah. land. And so the country is really kind of started on a lie or a myth, you know, and it's, sure. it's, hard to, it's hard to live in garbage and not stink from it. You know, it's hard to kind of pull yourself, yeah. pull yourself out. Your music, there is some precedent uh, for it, Southern uh, rock or whatever you'll call it. Um, you know, you talk about Skinner a little bit in some of your songs and some of your interviews. Uh, I'm thinking of Saturday Night Special. So. 
probably possibly the best gun control song ever written. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's up there. It's hard to hard hard to deny it. And uh, it's funny because they, you know, I don't know if the if if the the more current incarnations if they still play that song. I I I, I can't imagine not playing it. It's right. one of their hits. But but at the same time, do they you know do they turn their back when they play that one? <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's like uh, I know they or do they just follow it up with their guns and guns and God song or, or whatever, whatever. right? Uh, I'm thinking the Almond Brothers ain't wasting time no more. And that one. brother try and try again so again you see these quote-unquote like rednecks in the south but they're writing some pretty progressive stuff do you see yourself kind of in that same lineage or the the issues different these days than what they were talking about then you know it's funny i've never considered myself or our band southern rock i mean we made a record about that and it's funny because we were these kind of nerdy punk rock kids who were when we decided to make that record, we didn't want it. We wanted it to sound authentic. And so we worked really hard at trying to like make that record. You know, if you listen to the three records before it, they don't sound anything like that record. And, uh, and if you listen to Adam's house cat, you know, there's, there's certainly elements of, of those sounds that were present, particularly in some of the guitars. Cause if you growing up is, Play, growing up in the 70s and you play guitar there's going to be some skinnered in the mix because they were one of the great guitar bands ever you know and there's going to be you know if you're a good enough player there'll be some almond brothers in the mix somewhere too you know i was i don't think i was ever a good enough player to be all that influenced by the almond brothers because those guys you know that shit's more like jazz and shit you know but it's amazing but you know we we wanted it to sound at least a punk rock version of something authentic and so when the record came out and all of a sudden people started saying we were Southern Rock, it was like, oh, that's kind of cool. They, they, they kind of bought our bullshit, <laughs> you know, but it's almost you, you, when you, after a while, it's like you got cut, typecast as that character you played in a TV show one time. And, uh, and, and then forever you're Barney Fife or, or Gomer Powell or, 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 or Ronnie Van Sant or whatever, you know, there's been a certain element of that because I've just never, never really considered us or myself that. And, and so on some levels it's kind of flattering, but on other levels it sometimes gets annoying too, because I just, you know, I mean, if you ask me who my favorite Southern rock band was, I'd say REM and Outkast. You know, I would certainly include Skinner and Almond Brothers in any list because I think they're great bands. And, uh, you know, and I think that our record makes an argument for there being an actual punk rock side to what Leonard's to the what the original Leonard Skinner was doing, which was part of where I connected with it. You know, it's like like these were street kids who. I mean, there's, you know, they named their band after the coach that kicked yeah. them out. I mean, that's kind of punk rock, you know. Like it's like there was this, you know, I was always kind of coming into it more from a different direction from that direction, you know. Mm-hmm. Cooley, Cooley was more authentic than me for sure on that because Cooley did grow up a little closer to to that reality than I did. I mean, you know, I grew up closer to Skinner because my dad knew them because my dad was a musician, you know, and who, I mean, he knew them personally before they were in any way famous and continued to know them after they became famous. I don't know. It's, it's, it's always been kind of complicated. The uh, all music webpage, allmusic.com. They, they, they call you alt country. So I don't know if that's any better. Yeah, it's funny because the uh, and you know the alt country circles don't necessarily always embrace us either. <laughs> you know, like, they're not alt country. They're they're southern rock. <laughs> you know, and uh, in the earlier days of the Americana movement, we were always too rude and uh, and too belligerent 
to ever quite be embraced. Those those were a little smoother, sweeter sounds than what we were making, and so we were, so we were always a little bit, you know, bastard stepchildren in in, in that world too. That's why I just like rock and roll because yeah. it kind of incorporates all of it. You know, I mean, to me, Outcast is rock and roll. It's hip hop too, and it's 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 a lot of things, but it's also rock and roll. It, it can it can fit under that umbrella. You know, the records that influenced me learning how to write as a kid, Elton John records, for Christ's sake. Even though I never played piano, I, I basically first learned how to write songs when I was eight, trying to rip off Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Yeah. And the fact that I don't sound anything like that just means that I wasn't ever very good at ripping off Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, <laughs> but it wasn't for a lack of trying. Too much punk uh, still in the veins, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the punk rockers never quite accepted us either because we didn't look the part. We didn't dress punk. We didn't, you know, we, we, we didn't really look, you know, and that was part of why I loved R.E.M. so much because they didn't either. You know, they were, they just looked like, they didn't look like anything but R.E.M. And I loved that about them. But, uh The way more hands and paper and sneak They had the hand of something darker with this demographic, you know, you, you, you call, you know, people call you Southern rock or whatnot that usually has a certain crowd associated with it, right. Of fans and whatnot. And I was wondering if self-selection is, is an issue with some of your, um, your more political stuff. Cause I think, you know, for example, as a sociologist, the grand wizard or the white knights of the Klan's not going to take a sociology class on race and ethnic studies. You know, they're just going to opt out. So right. do you find that you can maybe reach more people because you got a foot in the door with them or do people kind of, you just end up preaching to the choir or does it even matter? It's weird because I always prided ourselves on how diverse our audience was. And uh, I always loved the Willie Nelson model. You know, it's like Willie Nelson can, can get on stage and smoke a joint on stage. You know, he smoked a joint at the White House, for Christ's sake. You know, he's Willie Nelson. He can get away with all of this. And his fans, you know, you'll you'll literally see people with their great-grandparents at a Willie Nelson show. You know, there's it's so multi-generational and multicultural and multi-political, and everybody loves Willie Nelson, you know, and the ones who don't agree with him, they're like, oh, that Willie, he just smokes too much dope, you know, and those of us who do agree with him are like, Willie Nelson, you know, and it's, it's awesome. And, and I, I think I mistakenly thought that maybe we could get away with that and uh and and for a long time we sort of did but uh but then we crossed the line when I, when I wrote what it means that crossed the line yeah. and uh all of a sudden all of a sudden there were people telling us not to say what we wanted to say and that's never acceptable if that's part of the contract of of that I mean Willie Nelson still says what the fuck he wants to say, you know, and so I'm going to say what the fuck I want to say. And if, if, if that makes people opt out, I'm sorry, but it's, you know, I'm still going to say what I want to say. You know, I didn't, I didn't get into any of this to kiss anybody's ass or, or necessarily to do the pragmatic careerist right thing either, you know, because when we were making Southern rock opera, believe me, there was nothing there was no p commercial potential in what we were doing with that, you right, know, right. and and people were very quick to point that out. You know, that record got turned down by by sixty labels, wow. and uh, they all passed. So we put it out ourselves, and then later sold it to a label on our own terms a year later, and uh, you know, and it all it all worked out. But it you know that we didn't do something that was considered viable. <laughs> You know, ever. So I've kind of always taken that to heart. It's like, look, you know, it goes two ways. You know, I'm, 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 I appreciate people loving our band and liking, you know, liking our music, but I'm never willing to not be true to what that voice in my head that controls what I actually write. And 
there are certainly things we could have done that would have been a lot more commercially viable than making American Band or putting out what it means. But we felt strongly about it, and we did it. And uh, I'm 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 happy with where I'm happy with where it where we ended up from it, even if even if there's aspects of it I'm not happy about. Fans change. What about the um, the removal of the monuments, Confederate monuments and things like that? You know, we talk in sociology a lot about symbolic interaction, and we create meaning by interacting with these symbols, you know. Um, George Gerbner, this late communication scholar, said, the telling of stories has always been the principal shaper of human behavior, and these monuments probably tell a story. I mean, I think they need to go. It's time. It's time. They, they, you know, I think it's unfortunate that they were put up in the first place, you know, and it's pretty telling the timing of when so many of them were put up. Pe- people can people can tell themselves, oh, it's honoring my great-great-granddad and all that kind of bullshit, but no, it's not, you know. It's honoring, it's honoring sla- the enslavement of other people, and it shouldn't have happened in the first place, but better late than never. Take them down. So most of these monuments are offensive to people because of race and uh, our racial history. But what about race and class? Do you think we should approach race and class at the same time? Kind of touched on this a little bit. Do you think you can separate them out? Do you think one is more important? Um, my colleague David Jaffe and I have this discussion back and forth about you know race versus class. And, of course, they both matter. But do you think you can, you can work on one before the other, or does it have to go together? They don't need to be opposing. I mean, they, they, I feel like they were made to be opposing by people who found it advantageous to them to have the two things working against each other. Uh, if you can keep, you know, if you can keep poor black people and poor white people fighting each other instead of the just cause, you know, it, it's uh, because there is power in numbers and it's so easy to stoke those fires. You know, when I when I look back on on things I wrote some years earlier, I've definitely don't always feel the same way now. And uh, you know, I think that when I was writing Southern Rock Opera, I was writing it from a well, I was a lot younger, and I was definitely writing from a, a more naive place about a lot of things. And I think I played down, you know, the the line about to the fucking rich man, all poor people look the same. Maybe they don't. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. they, 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 they may be looked down upon by the people who profit off of keeping poor people poor, but I'm not sure they look the same. I think, I think my heart was in the right place with what I was trying to say when I wrote it, but I don't, I never really felt like I quite got it. And, uh, you know, which is a shame because people love that song and it's got really bitching guitar. Yeah, it sure does. <laughs> it, it's a good crowd pleaser to do in a show and we almost never do it. You know, fortunately, we have a good number of kind of crowd pleaser songs, so I don't really right. feel like I have to play it. But, right. uh, but, uh, people aren't feeling cheated. I hope not. But, yeah. uh, they're 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 two they're almost like first cousins maybe i don't know you know there there is a a class war that has been waged and you know i guess probably forever but certainly certainly in in the time that i know of and there's the race stuff you know i mean it sucks to be poor period you know being poor sucks and i i i i I did some time there. That's for damn sure. And uh, at a time when my prospects of ever not being poor were pretty weak, you know, but at the same time I had, I was privileged with having people who cared enough about me and had the means to keep me from actually being homeless or whatever, you know, whatever it could have, could have gone to, you know, I, I, so I'm luckier than many and and was able to, because of that, was able to get through it and, you know, get myself in a better place, in a better situation. But when you add being black to being poor or 
or Hispanic or or add a minority to it, I think it definitely takes away even more means to get you're, you're having to overcome more than just being poor because you're also black or Mexican or something. And especially when you have someone in the White House who is so prominently building his entire image on negative connotations towards where you came from and who you are, you know, it's definitely not making it better. I don't know. Yeah. If you go with that divide and conquer notion, uh, race is an easy way to divide people, you know? Mm -hmm. So we see it in the Mexican border, right? These, you know, you have poor Mexicans taking poor white people's jobs. Like they're, it's all, they're all poor, you know, but that's a really easy way to separate. They're not taking the CEO jobs, right? And the economy would fall apart without those people to begin with. But once you add in that racial element or national element or what have you, it seems like that'll just keep the fire stoked. Right. All right. Thank you. Uh, Joni Mitchell quote, when the world becomes a massive mess with nobody at the helm, it's time for artists to make their mark. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> are you, are you, are you making what your mark? We got? Yeah. What else we got? You know, <laughs> I love Joni and uh, bless her heart. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure she's just batshit crazy, but, <laughs> but most geniuses tend to be that. And I think she's definitely, if, if, if the word genius gets overused, not in regards to Joni Mitchell. She is a genius. She considers herself a painter first. Right. I know she, I know she painted, but she, call, she calls herself a painter first. You know, and I'm like, holy smokes. You know, well, I, know, I made note when you sent me that email that uh, you, you said Joni Mitchell in parentheses, painter and, and musician. I can't remember exactly how you worded it, but uh, you, you included painter in, in your description of her. And uh, I, I, noted, I noticed that immediately. Yeah, I've always loved her painting. And uh, she, she can back that up. She is, she is something else as a painter. Oh, documenting history. Do you think your art is used to document history, like your particular art? Will people be listening to you later down the road saying this is what it was like to live in 2020? I have no idea. I mean, I feel like I'm documenting it. But if any, whether anybody notices 20 years from now or whatever, I'm, I'll, you know, uh, you know, I don't even know if I'll be around in 20 years. <laughs> so, you know, if the right, right things are going, I don't know. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, 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 you know, one thing about songs is they do have a way of taking on new lives at a later time. And, uh, but you never know what songs will do that. And it's not necessarily the ones you think would or, or predict will, you know, or that, Fucking Toto song, you know. Which, uh, I mean, uh, is, is it, is it Africa? It. Which one is oh, it? God, yes. <laughs> you know, you know, who would have ever imagined that that song would have this life right now that right. it has? Right. You know? <laughs> well, there's hope for Monument Valley then, right? Yeah, you know, or Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> So you have two children, Ava, is that right, and Emmett. What do you tell them about what's going on in the world? How do, how do they interpret it? How do you help them interpret it? Read you this quote from Uncut, I guess, a couple years ago, maybe right after the Unraveling came out, but they apparently one of your kids is on the cover, the beach, yeah. and you yeah. said something, I'll paraphrase, but something like, we're leaving them a whole pile of shit, and hopefully they can clean it up for us yeah boy, what, do you, like, tell, what do you tell your like kids when i say that at all they uh they, they'll call me on that shit real quick and uh uh emmett in particular who's the one on the cover you know it's like don't don't expect us to clean up your mess get off you know you clean it up and uh which is something i would probably tell him about his room 
he just like turns it all back around on me, you know, which is a beautiful thing about kids because they will do that, you know. They're and uh, they're they're smart. They're they're super smart and they're they're super. You know, I hate the word, but woke and all of that. And uh, they don't they don't take any shit about it. They're 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 pretty on it. They're going to be okay. Okay. They've been yeah. following the protests and everything in Portland and whatnot. Just, yeah, my, I'm my sure son you cannot. Gets really upset about it. He gets. He gets. I mean, we all get upset about it. You sure. know, but you know, he can hear the tear gas booms from his from from his bedroom. You know, wow. he can hear it in our house. And, wow. uh, so yeah, he he gets he gets really upset about it. He gets really upset about politics, which gets discussed a lot in our house, and uh, and he gets really tired of how much it all gets discussed he would rather talk about jurassic park sure, and sure, uh sure. He, he really likes jurassic park it's a lot less <laughs> stressful even though it's yeah. scary it's a lot less stressful than reality yeah <laughs> but that's that's an image indelibly imprinted in your brain when you're waking up here in tear gas you know being yeah, shot at, sure. at, at that age yeah it's hard to shake that how are you doing on time we got are you we got a couple more minutes are you okay uh yeah i'm gonna have to go, go. soon soonish but I don't want to cut you short. And if we need to reconvene, we can. If you don't have everything you need, I know I'm long-winded and I've been doing these rambling answers. So while you're doing that. I don't want to screw you over because we've had this on the books forever and I want to make sure I give you everything you need. So I'm getting back to what made me want to uh, want us to, to do these kind of interviews. I also interviewed a, uh, a visual artist here in town named Dustin Harewood, who's just a badass visual artist. And so I was thinking I wanted to hear from some different areas within, within art. But what got me thinking about it originally is this debate about um, if you want to make change, do you address the economics of a society, the politics, or the culture of society? And, and I was trained with kind of a Marxist perspective where, you know, the culture is really just the dominant culture, the dominant class culture. So for us, it kind of goes back to economics. But then I read this quote that said, artists have always been agents of cultural change. An art-based approach is necessary because it stimulates empathy, and empathy is necessary to achieve social justice. To effectuate change, activists needs to work through cultural means. Can, is changing culture the first step if you want to make broad social changes? Can culture change power? God, you, I don't think you can. I don't know. I'm not sure you can separate it and, and have one without the other. I think they're all. It's all so intermingled, even though uh, it's also in, intermingled, and yet each one thinks it stands alone. Or seems to stand alone, but it doesn't really. I mean, you know, you can't really enact the the economic and the uh, you know those changes without there being a change in the culture, at least to the point to where the culture is willing to accept those changes. And at the same time, the economic factors affect the culture. So it's so hard to separate it out. It's like kind of have to kind of have to work on both of them right. kind of have to work on them both at the at the same time separate and together and you know i mean i'm a big believer that you have to win hearts and minds are are we facing that coming up could be you know i mean we definitely i think i think eight years of w and all the bullshit that came with that definitely led us to having obama and then you can also argue that eight years of Obama led us to having this fucking bullshit that we're orange in right now. Bag. Yeah, the orange gas bag. You know, so, you know. It's a nice segue into my last question. Uh, right. If you, uh, million dollar question now that you're warmed up, uh, if you could choose one thing to make progressive change, like number one thing, and for me it would be that just what you mentioned there kind of to address our our kind of political duopoly where we really just have these two choices and there's not a whole lot of difference uh, between, between the choices. I remember that 2016 election bumper sticker ready for oligarchy. You know, it doesn't matter which side wins. I would say we need to expand, you know, kind of expand that and have different options for political parties. What about you? If you could take kind of make one change that you think would be the most successful in uh, providing for a better America, where would you start? I mean, we need to go back fucking caring about each other you know it's all about me 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 
not is not the way to have a healthy country or or people or culture or anything you know i mean that's so simplistic you know you know i'm not a i'm not a particularly religious person and i i'm, I'm by no means call myself any kind of a, a christian or anything but you know that whole doing to others kind of thing i always kind of bought into that you know to me you know when i turned against religion was because i didn't see very much of that being taught in the churches that i got sent to as a kid you know and uh but i always kind of bought into that whole notion of that of of the golden rule it's it's the golden rule for a reason you know that sounds so simplistic but you know some of some sometimes the most profound most profoundly important things are simple and to me to me you know that's at the that's at the bottom of our you know, you can't tell me to wear a mask, you know, well, you know, because I don't have it. Well, you know, you know, I'm whatever. It's like, no, wear a fucking mask, asshole. You know, it's like, it's, you know, everybody wearing masks. Maybe I can fucking go back to work one of these days. Right. Not, right. You know, not yeah. have to spend my life in my attic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like just looking out for others is, is, uh, is a pretty basic way to, but we don't, yeah. We don't always do that in America. We don't have this. We're kind of pretty individualistic upbringing in our country, as opposed to like more of a concern for the collective. You know that some right. might have. Yeah. Towards the end of our second conversation, as I was thanking him, I asked him if he had anything else he wanted to talk about, and we ended up discussing an essay he wrote for NPR that came out in mid June entitled now about the bad name I gave my band it's about his band name and the potential offensiveness of it and how he came to settle on that name I got the usual backlash of letters you know you know calling me a pussy and saying I need to uh, quit kissing ass in Portland and be real again and yeah yeah like that you know it's politically like- correct yeah, like whatever, dude. You know, right? Uh, <laughs> it's because, always dudes. You know? Sure, oh, of course, right? <laughs> you know, I, I, at the end of the day, you know, I think it's kind of a stupid name. If I'd known, if I'd had any idea that we would be around past two thousand, I probably would have put a little more care into what we named the band. Uh, if I had been a little more, you know, woke to what that name could be perceived in some, I mean, I don't think, I don't think we're really hurting anybody. I don't think it's like the Washington Redskins or even Lady Antebellum, you know, or anything like that. It's just kind of a stupid name. We're not a stupid band. You know, we weren't really a stupid band when we started, but we were, we, we were, we were just having fun, you know, and drinking a lot. And, and, and it was a, it was a name that served a, a specific purpose at a specific time for a specific room, literally in the most literal way possible. You know, it's like, ah, you know, I bet we could sell out the star bar if we called it that. We did. <laughs> it worked, you know, and that would have been the perfect time to then rename the band. But, you know, it's been, I mean, we've got a lot of fucking records, you know, yeah. I mean, we're, we're on counting solo records and side projects. We're oh. like at 21, 22 records, maybe. Okay. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, changing the name. I mean, we very well may to start calling. I mean, I never I always call it DBT anyway. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it is putting DBT on there. I don't know. You know, or, that wouldn't be a big know. change. We put out a single recently and called it the DBTs because it's kind of a kind of an R and B influence, kind of Memphis sounding song. And we all, you know, we played with Booker. You know, when we were when we toured with Booker, we called ourselves the DBTs because okay. it just seemed cool because yeah. he was in the MGs. It's like, okay, we're the DBTs, you know, and it's just kind of in a loving tribute to to something that came before us. And 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 honestly, we met drive by truckers very lovingly. That was a big part of of '90s hip hop was that part of the culture, and we were all listening to tons of 90s hip-hop at that time, even though our music don't sound any more like that than it does the Elton John records I grew up on. <laughs> it was certainly an influence to us, and and so the name was a nod to that, 
And the trucker part was a nod to literally truck stop ta- red sovine tapes, which we listened to a lot on the butt. I mean, on the, in the van. I remember those. Heard us up on those long drives, hearing hearing uh, te- teddy bear. You know, <laughs> so outcast teddy bear drive by truckers. It's all the DBTs. It's all rock and roll. You know. <laughs> by truckers. I'm J.R. Woodward. I'd like to thank Patterson for carving some time out over the course of two days to sit and chat. He entertains a lot of media requests these days and I'm grateful to him for sharing his thoughts with me. Thanks also to Christine Stouter of Red Light Management for setting things up and to Penny Devine for her production help and to Chuck Martell at KGLT in Bozeman, the 2000 year old man. If you have any questions or comments, please email them to me at woodward at fscj.edu. Thanks for listening. Just a little bit tight Ain't the first time I've been